When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Business Management and Marketing, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the episode is Will Gadara. Will Gadara is the founder of Thank You, a hospitality company that develops world-class destinations and helps leaders across industries transform their approach to customer service. He is a former co-owner of Eleven Madison Park and The Nomad, and is the co-founder of the Welcome Conference, an annual hospitality symposium. He has co-authored four cookbooks, was named one of Crane's New York Business's 40 Under 40, and is a recipient of Wall Street Journal Magazine's Innovator Award. He lives in the Hudson Valley with his wife, Christina, and their daughter, Frankie. He joins us today to talk about his new book, published yesterday, October 25th, 2022, Um, his new book, Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect, published by Optimism Press, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Will Gadara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's, uh, it's really great to be, to be talking to you. Yeah, but wow, the pleasure is mine. Like I said, I, I, I blew through the book um, pretty much in a day and a half. We asked the same question of all authors at the top of uh, the episodes. What motivated you to write the book? You know, I, I was thinking about writing a book for a while. Um, I've been very blessed, as you were as well, to have worked with and for some pretty remarkable people over the years. And through what I learned from them and through the things I kind of figured out on my own, I just felt like I had a lot of lessons about service and leadership through the lens of hospitality that I wanted to share with the world. Um, But I will say that COVID certainly expedited the process in in two ways. One, it gave me the space uh, such that I could give myself the grace to actually sit down and start writing um, because it is an overwhelming process, at least at the top of it, to take all the things from your head and put them on on the page. But it also made me feel like the book is more needed now, perhaps, than ever. Um, 
listen, the book is about relationships. I believe that relationships are all about connection. And the thing that I missed and the thing that everyone I know missed the most profoundly over the course of the pandemic was exactly that connection with the people we love, with the people we work with, with those we serve. And this book is me trying to encourage people to be more intentional, more unreasonable in pursuit of connection. Well, yeah, we definitely saw that, um, you know, here in New York, as the pandemic was raging um, and you could eat outdoors in restaurants, I remember that first summer saying, well, you know, I'm not going to do this when it gets down to 38, 32 degrees. That's crazy. Um, and of course, but, but I did, but I did because the desire to connect was greater than, you know, sitting bundled in the cold. Um, it was so super important. So you mentioned you and I, um, you and I are a Venn diagram. We worked for the same companies, but ne you and I never worked one shift together. No, no, no. But let us, <laughs> it's, uh, it's unbelievable, especially when I read the names in the book. Um, but let us set the table for the listeners. You and I worked for, um, among other companies, Union Square Hospitality Group and Restaurant Associates. For people who may not be familiar, what are these companies in New York? So I'll start with the latter just to... to to stick with the chronology restaurant associates was, and I, I believe this is a widely held view, kind of like the, the first great American restaurant company. Um, it was run by a guy named Joe Baum for many, many years. And, um, Joe Baum, whether during his time at restaurant associates or, or around it is responsible for places like windows in the world and the rainbow room and the four seasons and, and a lot of other iconic New York restaurants. And over time, Restaurant Associates grew to um, become a pretty, pretty big company, running everything from uh, the food and beverage at the Met Opera and Lincoln Center and the Met Life Building and the U.S. Open. Um, my dad was also the president of Restaurant Associates when I was growing up, not when I worked there, but um, I grew up in the Restaurant Associates family. Um, Union Square Hospitality Group, owned by Danny Meyer, is... Uh, I don't know, some would say kind of the next generation of that. Similarly, Danny redefined hospitality in New York and America, and some would argue across the world, um, by proving the thesis that fine dining doesn't need to be stuffy. Um, I think some would say he brought a Midwestern sensibility to the fine dining restaurant scene in New York City and was responsible for Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, uh, the modern Tabla. He is the one that initially opened 11 Madison Park um, and, and so many more. And so through those two, I mean, those are the two companies that really built the foundation upon which everything I've done since has been has been formed. Yeah. So 11 Madison Park. Let's talk about 11 Madison Park. Um, when you become the general manager of 11 Madison Park. It has two out of four possible New York Times stars. It has zero out of three possible Michelin stars. It is not on the radar of the 50 best restaurants in the world. 
It is not a Relais and Chateau property. Seven years later, and you, of course you do this in partnership with Daniel and a lot of people, which we'll talk about, but seven years later, you have earned four out of four New York Times stars twice. Two different reviewers, Frank Bruni and Pete Wells. You go from zero to three out of three Michelin stars. You are a Relay and Chateau property. <laughs> and you go from number 50, world's best. So we're not talking about New York City. World's best restaurants. You go from number 50 to number one. This is accomplished over seven years. And you do it through what you call unreasonable hospitality. I mean, it's a staggering achievement. What is unreasonable hospitality? So, you know, when you look at the list of the, the, the 50 best restaurants in the world and you look at the restaurants that have topped that list over the years, they've done so because the chef owner of that restaurant was unreasonable in pursuit of what they were putting on the plate. They were unreasonable in pursuit of the product they were serving, whether it was its sourcing, its uh, preparation, its technique, its presentation, all of those things. They all became number one in the world. Because, and let me just back up for a second. I believe that that accolade merely indicates the restaurant that's having the greatest impact on the world of food, um, or the world of restaurants, rather. They, they topped that list by looking at what needed to change, what needed to evolve. <clears throat> when I set out to aspire to, to earn the number one spot, I started thinking about what I wanted my impact to be. And what I wanted it to be was on the thing that would never change, which is the thing that was so inherently built into our DNA, yours and mine at USHG, but the human desire to be taken care of. And I figured if we could be unreasonable in pursuit of that, unreasonable in pursuit of how we made people feel that we'd have a good shot at making a real impact. Now, when I say unreasonable, what I'm really saying is that you'll go to whatever lengths, that you'll show unbridled creativity, relentless intention, that you'll go above and beyond to make people feel seen, to give them a sense of belonging, and to make them feel welcome. So we began the interview, you said this is about relationships and the desire to relate, and, and unreasonable hospitality in the book is a story about relationships. So um, what I want to get to is I'm going to give you a name from the book and you're going to let me know what that person, how that person contributed to your learning and implementing unreasonable hospitality. And we'll start with Hani, the controller. Hmm. Hani Ishkan was the controller for restaurant associates at the MetLife building. Um, where I spent about a year working as the assistant purchaser in the mornings and the assistant controller in the afternoons. That was not a job I was overly excited to take. I was coming from the front door <laughs> at Tabla where I was a cool restaurant guy. And, and then I went to working in the basement and the back office. Um, but I did it because my dad, who has always been a, a, a very important part of my life, insisted that I, I really solidify my foundation before I tried to build on top of it. Um, Hani taught me that you can't skip steps, that if you want to master something, you need to take it one step at a time and approach it thoughtfully and slowly. Um, Hani taught me about accounting, 
Um, Hani taught me the ways to manage a business, which, by the way, one of the reasons why so many restaurants fail is not because they're not good restaurants. It's because they're not good businesses and people haven't shown the same intentionality in managing the numbers as they have in managing the experience. Um, I remember when I was working for Hani, you know, in, in a restaurant, the P&L, the profit and loss statement is the end all be all, right? Like that's the final report that is fueled by many, many other reports that shows the financial picture of the restaurant. And working with Hani was almost like the karate kid and Mr. Miyagi. I wanted to get in the ring and start, you know, doing karate. I wanted to get into the PNL and he made me wait months and months and months. Um, at first I was very frustrated by that, but over time, what he taught me was that if you take smaller steps, if you approach things with palatable bites, you'll have a much more comprehensive understanding of the big picture once you get there. The skipping steps thing is, I think, super important for, for all businesses. Um, because I, I've seen businesses where they skipped the business step. I've been in restaurants where the business step was skipped um, and watching them go back and try to uh, put it in place is extremely difficult. But I've also been inside of, of businesses where hospitality was skipped, um, not even really considered. Mm. And it appears to me much harder to go back what I saw over and over again and say, oh, we want this thing called hospitality. Because you write later on when you were dealing with uh, the 08 crash <clears throat> about hospitality, you know, is a line on the PL. Um, and over and over again, I've had the benefit of being asked to consult or look at a business. Everybody wanted sort of the hospitality magic. And without fail, when I mentioned, well, hospitality, it's a line item on the PL. Like, no, 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 no. We just, we just want to know how it's done. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's an invest. <laughs> That's how it's done. Um, I found it's a harder step to, to go back. Um, I don't know if that's your experience. Well, no, for um, sure. Because, I mean, listen, here's, here's my view on, on hospitality and the idea that it is an investment because I do believe it's an investment. You need to allocate resources if you want to have a culture of hospitality and the return on those resources is harder to measure than than some people are accustomed to um and so what it requires is like a deep-rooted belief and for some a leap of faith because you're spending more without an immediate return on that investment um and i think when people bring someone in to bring hospitality to their culture, it's normally rooted by the fact that they want to increase their bottom line. And if your first <laughs> if your first comment is, we actually are going to make a little bit less money in the short term such that we can make a lot more money in the long term, some people lack the foresight to to want to take that step. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of interviews have ended for me that way. They're like, oh, thank you for your time. <laughs> and that's it. But you said about it's hard, much harder to measure. So uh, I'm sure that you heard uh, at Restaurant Associates what I heard over and over again. I think it is probably generally true. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. But now you're saying, I want you to do something that the measurement is is an act of faith. It's really frightening for a lot of people. Um, here's another name 
uh, about um, a, a relationship that's just really tremendous to read in the book that uh, in the hands of someone, a lesser manager, this might not have happened. I'm going to, I hope I don't mispronounce the first name, but Eliazar Cervantes. Eliazar. So, Eliazar, excuse yeah, me. No, no, no. I, I, I wasn't saying that to correct your pronunciation more, just that was like a fond repetition of his name. Eliazar, and Eliazar became one of the most important people out of the Medicine Park. Um, but he wasn't in the beginning. He was there when I got there. And he was one of the people that the managers already in place weren't super fond of. He was a food runner. And the responsibilities of being a food runner, the expectations of what they needed to know and the things they needed to do in order to be good at their job weren't things that he felt a real passion or connection to. Um, I tell the story in the book about my dad in Vietnam, which I, I think is a really helpful way to understand the idea that I'm about to, to articulate. When my dad was in Vietnam, he, he was a lieutenant. He had his own platoon. And there was a guy, his name was Kentucky. Well, that was his nickname because he was from Kentucky. They weren't very creative with their nicknames back then. Um, <laughs> and he was kind of the worst guy in the platoon. Um, he, he wasn't the, the sharpest guy in the group. He wasn't the most responsible, all that stuff. And so my dad initially did what you would think he would do. He put him in the middle of the pack where he could do the least damage to the group. Um, now, the thing that my dad always says about his, his platoon in Vietnam, and he always used that to give me perspective when I was leading my teams over the years, was in a restaurant, in any business, you can hire someone, you decide who you want to hire, you can fire someone, you can have them leave, right? In a platoon, when you're at war, you have no control over who's on your team, and you certainly can't fire them. And by the way, the consequences are much greater. It's life or death. And what he realized was, if that were the case, he couldn't manage his platoon in such a way where he was trying to minimize his downside. He needed to work as hard as he could to maximize his upside. He did that by getting to know every person in the platoon. The more he got to know Kentucky, the more he realized that Kentucky grew up in the backwoods of Kentucky. He was very, very comfortable in the middle of the deep woods, which is where they were in Vietnam. And therefore, he had a much more preternatural sense of direction than anyone else. Their platoon was getting lost a lot. It was a bunch of city slickers in the middle of the jungle. By getting to know Kentucky and moving him to the front of the pack, such that he was the guy responsible for getting them where they needed to go, he took one of the weakest people on the platoon and turned him in to one of the strongest people in it. The same thing happened with Eleazar. Everyone was frustrated by his performance and wanted him to go away. But in the beginning of my time at Eleven Madison Park, I chose to just get to know everyone on the team. And as I got to know Eleazar, I got to realize that, yeah, he wasn't super passionate about food. That's why he didn't know all the ingredients. Um, but he was a natural-born leader. And so we moved him from food runner to the expediter, the person that's like basically air traffic control in a restaurant. They're the person responsible for making sure that the plates from the kitchen are given to the people who know where to bring them in the dining room. It's impossible to explain to anyone who has not worked in a restaurant. It's a really, really, really hard job. He went from one of the weakest food runners to being one of the best expediters I've ever worked with and a very, very instrumental part of our success. And the only thing that needed to happen 
was me spending a little bit of time getting to know him before I gave up on him. And he wanted to succeed. Yeah. A lot of people want to, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, but this is, um, I was really struck. uh, I was struck obviously by a lot in the book, but I'm, and I'm thinking about this as a management way of looking at things, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Managers have a responsibility to people who are trying to succeed. Mm. Can you just run with that? Yeah, the, what I talk about is there's two types of people who are struggling with an, in, in an organization. Those that aren't trying and those that are trying really hard, right? And, and the issues within each are different. Listen, if no matter how much you try to inspire or encourage or support someone, they're just not trying. Okay, they're not the right person for your team. Because we all deserve not only the leaders, but everyone on the team to be surrounded by people who care enough to put their best efforts forward. But then there are those that are trying and struggling. And when you have someone that cares enough that they're going all in, they're really trying to be successful, you have a responsibility to those people. It's to either give them the resources that they need to get better at their job or to figure out maybe they're just not in the right job. And if they're going to bring their best efforts to the table, focus those efforts towards an objective that can really help the team in its entirety. So then with that, I'm going to make another relationship, one that you and I share, which was instrumental for me and him. Um, (laughs) Richard Corrine. Richard Corrine. Richard Corrine was one of the partners at Union Square Hospitality Group. Um. Man, I learned so much from RC. You know, I think in in a company that was very, very focused on hospitality, and this is not, I don't think how I describe RC in the book, but it's what's present in my mind right now. RC was also focused on excellence. Um, I think so many companies in this day and age, um, especially with the staffing shortages and, and all of this, are so focused on affirmation like just celebrating their teams that they forget how criticizing constructive criticism of their teams is just as important because if praise is affirmation, criticism is investment. That is where you're showing the team that you're willing to have the uncomfortable conversations that are needed to make the people that work for you better at what they do. And if you want to surround yourself with a group of thoroughbreds, you only want to stay on the team as long as you know that you're improving. RC was never scared of having the hard conversations. He was always focused on not just the kind, warm, fuzzy spirit, but also everyone on the team being the best versions of themselves. RC also told me, taught me, and so many of us, another lesson, um, one of his quotes that I love the most was, one size fits one. And he used that as the philosophy as it pertained to the staff and the guests, right? Like if hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but to serve them as a specific individual, to tailor your approach to that relationship differently than you would anyone else. And that same idea applies to those that you're working with. So you write in the book, in spite of all this mushy talk, about listening and learning at heart. I'm a systems guy. Yeah, but you're also mushy. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. You are. You're both. <laughs> you're, you're both. Yeah. Because the yes, all about praise and, and the criticism, because you also do something which I've had the experience. I don't know if you have as a leader, when something hurts, a stinging review, whatever it is, when something hurts when, or, or a defeat at an award show, when it hurts, when it sucks, let it hurt. Yeah. And I have had too many bosses that were always all cheerleader and glossed over the fact that as a team, we had just hurt. Um, and that emotional intelligence, um, it comes through in the book. How important do you think it was to let the hurts hurt at 11 mad? I think it's essential. So I'll, I'll start with kind of where you started and then back into it. One of the other things in the book again, from my dad, is adversity is a terrible thing to waste. His whole thing was like, hey, you can't control the doses of adversity that are going to come to you, but you can control how you react to them, what you learn from them, how you use them to challenge you, make you better, use them as moments and opportunities for growth. But it is very, very unhealthy as a leader of an organization to jump right to that. Because the bottom line is disappointment, sadness, feelings of defeat. They're real. And I mean, this is like something people would hear from their therapist all the time, right? If you just ignore something, you're just letting it stew and simmer. It doesn't go away. I believe you need to, as a leader, A, tell your team, I hurt too, right? Because then it gives people the safety and comfort to feel the thing they're feeling. And you need to give the collective organization, the grace and the space to feel the weight of the disappointment. And then after that, however long you decide to do it, then you brush off, you get up and you see what you can learn from it and you use it as a challenge to make you better. Yeah. And as someone who my restaurant career is behind me and I'm now a therapist, I agree. Um, <laughs> here's, here's one that I don't think people are going to expect. Here's a name, uh, but that plays in personally for you with unreasonable hospitality, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge. Um, they, my dad gave me a plaque uh, with a quote from him on it when I was a kid. Um, people might recognize it as the one that started with the words press on. Um, but it, it ends with persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. Um, I do think that is very, very relevant to not only accomplishing goals, right? Like the people that succeed aren't always the smartest in the room. They're not always the talent, most talented in the room. They don't always have the best education. They are the ones that are relentless in their pursuit. But it also applies to hospitality because sometimes it's just kind of being persistent in your pursuit of another person that gets you to the point where you have the kind of relationship you're trying to have. And that works in different ways, right? Like you could talk, you could say persistent, you could say intentional. Um, a Danny Meyerism is the charitable assumption, right? Like give people the benefit of the doubt. I love to talk about that as it pertains to someone who comes into the dining room and they're just kind of acting like a jerk. Now we are inclined when someone is being mean to not give them our best, most fully realized selves. Danny's whole idea was, 
hold on. Maybe they're being mean because they're the person that needs love more than anyone else in the room. Maybe they found out on their way to dinner that their wife had filed for divorce. Maybe they need more love, not less love. Maybe they need some persistence and some determination. Now, there are exceptions there. Abuse cannot be tolerated, and and there is a line. But to lead with that charitable assumption and to pursue someone with relentless and determination, it also applies to just the beginning of any exchange, right? I would always tell my teams at the beginning of the night, listen, we are going to be the most successful as a restaurant the more quickly we can genuinely connect with the people we're serving. And people walk into a restaurant, they walk into any business with their guards up. We walk into any new relationship with our guards up. The more quickly we can create the conditions where people are comfortable enough to let those guards down, that's the moment that a genuine relationship starts to to take root. You need to be persistent in getting those guards down. So let's now move into what actually happened from a systems guy point of view at 11 Madison Park that you, in a sense, married with the unreasonable part of the hospitality. You write um, that when you arrived at 11 Madison Park, um, there were plenty of standards in place, but no systems to communicate them. What, what is your definition of standards and systems? So a standard is when someone in an organization decides this thing is going to be done this way. A system of communication is where there's enough planning and intention behind how you ensure that every single person on the team knows that as well. There's far too many companies where you'll you'll hear the CEO <laughs> say something in an interview and then you walk into the branch of whatever company that is and the people on the front line have no understanding or idea that that's even a part of their responsibility. I do believe that most people are inclined to want to succeed, but without systems of communication, you haven't given them the resources, the tools, the information in order to succeed because different people view success in different ways. Um, the system that we employed was, is not novel. It just needed to be put in there. It's something that you and I grew up doing, which is pre-meal. Um, pre-meal in a restaurant is the 30 minutes a day right before you open the doors to the public. Um, by the way, pre-meal <laughs> is a systems thing and a mushy thing. Um, and I think when it's done in equal doses, that's when it's the most effective. But when you are very well-planned, in that 30 minute meeting, you make sure that everyone has all the information they need to do their job well, such that one manager isn't saying do something this way and another manager is saying do it a different way, right? That lack of consistency can be one of the most unsettling things for anyone in an organization. But pre-meal can also be the mushy part where if approached correctly, it's when the people you work with cease being a collection of individuals and come together as a trusting team because you create space, not just to focus on the what, but also on the why, where you share moments of inspiration, you remind people why the work matters, you reinforce your collective ambition, you talk about experiences that you've had that have filled your gas tank such that people can feel inspired to turn around and give experiences like that to others. Um, I really believe that if every customer service organization on the planet 
started their own version of a pre-meal meeting, customer service as we know it would change completely. So in your uh, travels and engaging with uh, businesses, even restaurants, why is that one of the first thing that goes away? Why aren't they doing it? I think it's not dissimilar to what we were talking about before. It's an investment. It's an investment in time and money, right? You're, you're paying everyone on your team to stand in a circle for 30 minutes and connect. And I think the short-term ramifications of something like that falling by the wayside are somewhat insignificant compared to the long-term ramifications. Um, it goes back to the whole idea of what gets measured gets managed. It's hard to measure the immediate return of time spent together as a team. But I don't believe it matters less. In fact, I believe it matters much more. Yeah. I mean, yes, you and I have this this background and a, and a good pre-shift. One of the servers at Union Square, she said, it is care for the caregivers. Hmm. I love that. And I really, really, I love that. I thought that was great. Um, so, all right, we have standards, we have systems, we have a good pre-shift. We're now about to get unreasonable. Tell me about the rule of 95-5. So that was one of the rules that defined kind of my entire approach to managing the business. And what, what it meant was manage your money like a crazy person 95% of the time. When I say a crazy person, I mean, consider every penny, every single expense and manage them like a hawk, such that 5% of the time you can spend, quote, foolishly. And I, I put foolishly in quotes because, and it goes back to, to kind of the exact thing we've been talking about, um, because it's not foolish at all. It's actually that spending that creates the kind of memories that lock people into a relationship with you and your brand forever. I think the best kind of expression of 95.5 was in the Dreamweaver program. And I'm sure we'll get to that. And at some point we can jump in now if you'd like, but yeah, jump in. Let's, let's get to it. So I had kind of written down unreasonable hospitality on a cocktail napkin. Um, when we came in last place on the list of the 50 best restaurants in the world as the thing that I wanted to use, the strategy that I thought would take us to the top. When I wrote it down, I wasn't even sure exactly what it meant, but sometimes I think that's okay. I don't know that, I don't believe you always need to understand a goal uh, completely as long as you feel enough of a connection to it, to believe enough in it, and then you'll figure out exactly what it means as you start to pursue it. Um, then one day during a busier than normal lunch service, um, I was helping the servers out in the dining room and I was clearing, uh, appetizers from a table of four foodies who were on vacation to New York and on their way to the airport to head back home after their lunch. And they were raving about their trip. They'd been to all the best restaurants per se, uh, Danielle, Liberty Dan, 11 Madison park, Momofuku. The only thing they didn't have was a street cart hot dog. <laughs> it was like one of those cartoon, uh, moments with the, with the light bulb over the head. Um, <laughs> I walked back into the kitchen as calmly as I could, put the plates down, ran outside, grabbed a hot dog, ran back into the kitchen. Then came the hard part, which was convincing the chef to to serve it in our fancy restaurant. Um, but he eventually agreed to cut the hot dog up into four perfect pieces and add a little, you know, ketchup and mustard to the plate. And before their final savory course, which was a honey lavender glazed Muscovy duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, we served them their hot dog. And I explained it. 
I said to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets, a New York City hot dog. They freaked out. <laughs> I mean, I'd served Wagyu beef and lobster and caviar and all this stuff over the course of my career. I'd never seen anyone respond to something I'd served them like they did to that hot dog. And in that moment, I, I realized I had, I had understood what unreasonable hospitality was. Um, I started talking about it all the time with the team at, at our pre-meal meetings and kind of encouraging them to start coming up with gestures of their own. And we were all fired up and we got started right away. But we quickly realized that an idea is just an idea if you don't invest in the resources to bring it to life consistently. And so we added a position to the team someone whose only responsibility was to help everyone else in the team bring their ideas to life. Um, I called the position the Dreamweaver, named after the iconic song by Gary Wright. If you don't know what that is, then you're in a different generation than I am. Um, no, I do know the well, song, and as you write in the book, it is now stuck in my head. <laughs> no. Yeah, I knew you would know what it was. I'm, I'm talking to some of the listeners that might not know it. And if you don't, yeah, go listen to it on Spotify. Go listen it. to it, yeah. Um, thank, thank us later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and with the Dreamweaver program, what we did was we gave everyone on the team the permission and the resources to come up with their own hot dog moments. And it started happening constantly. Um, a table of four, uh, a family was on vacation in New York from Spain and it started snowing outside. And we watched as the kids were like gazing out the windows with wonder because it was their first time seeing snow. The Dreamweaver somehow found a store still open on a Friday night selling sleds. And when they left the restaurant, they were greeted by a chauffeur driven SUV to take them to Central Park to go sledding. Um, that's one example of thousands that is the 5%. The cost of the Dreamweaver, the cost of the sleds, um, hard to measure the return on that 5%. But, and this is not backed by any data, <laughs> I guarantee that the impact of that 5% was far more dramatic than any dollar we ever spent on traditional public relations. Um, because of three things. One, we were making the guest feel really good, right? And those stories, listen, people don't collect things anymore. They collect experiences. And there's no point to collect an experience if they don't have a memory, um, a story that helps them relive it over and over again. When you give them a story like that, they will go out and tell that story endlessly. Um, the Maya Angelou quote, people forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, they'll never forget how you made them feel. That table that I served with a hot dog to, I guarantee you they don't remember anything else they ate, but I, I'm sure they've told the story about that hot dog thousands of times, and it's encouraged other people to come to the restaurant. Two, the staff was happier than ever before. Because one, for the first time, they had creative autonomy. Those of us in the dining room, we were no longer just serving plates of food that someone else had created. We were imbuing the experience with our own creativity. We had taken salespeople and turned them into product designers. And the moment you give people a say in the experience they're delivering, they become so much more invested in making that experience great. And three, we were all just really happy because we were making other people really happy. One of the biggest issues in so many workplaces right now is burnout, energy depletion. But when you create a culture of unreasonable hospitality, 
you're giving your team the gift of being able to give other people gifts. And there's nothing more energizing than seeing the look of complete joy on someone else's face when they receive a gift that you're responsible for giving them. And so that's 95.5. It's spending 5% foolishly, but actually it's the smartest money you'll ever spend. So <clears throat> we're talking about this uh, restaurant um, and <laughs> we're talking about a restaurant and we haven't mentioned the chef. I think we should probably do that. Um, chef was Daniel whom, how do the two of you, in a sense, agree to collaborate on this unreasonable uh, hospitality? Because you couldn't do it without him, and he couldn't do it without you. But how does that how does that happen? I mean, I talk a lot in the book. One of the chapters is relationships are simple. Simple is hard. <clears throat> um, and whenever you're sharing ownership with someone else, there's tension, right? One of the main things that I talk about as it pertains to a partnership, but really any relationship, is the need to lean into that tension. <clears throat> because when you feel tension, the kind of tension that's based on two people thinking that something should be done in different ways, but both thinking that because they want the best for the restaurant, that is the most beautiful thing. In moments of tension, people have a tendency to lean away as opposed to having the wherewithal to recognize that the only reason there's tension is because you both want to be the best. And far too many of us have spent time working in organizations alongside other people that don't care. When there's tension, it means you are very lucky. You work alongside people that care just as much as you do, that care enough to fight really hard for the smallest things. Um, working together in pursuit of any goal requires understanding that it's important to lean into that tension, to see it as a good thing, not a bad thing, and to be intentional about how to process through the tension. We did that in a few different ways. We always talked about the third option when each of us found ourselves very entrenched in our respective position on a binary decision that we needed to make. We looked at it as an opportunity for innovation and temporarily suspended the reality that either of our individual ideas could be implemented. And so what would a third option look like? What would be the most innovative approach that can make both of us happy? Um, we had a philosophy of it's important to me that if you respect the person you're working with in moments of disagreement, sometimes you just need it to give it to the person um, who cares more. And so there was a line, it's important to me. If someone dropped that in any long lasting debate, that was the end of the conversation with an important rule you couldn't overuse. It's important to me. It could be like the boy who cried wolf um, and a number of other similar approaches that we took. Well, you mentioned um, it in your answer here in this discussion, something that was always very important to me as a leader. And I think is, is important to, I told my team and you told you and Daniel talk about it, the partnership, which is that there's many constituencies in any business and in a restaurant, you have staff, you have guests, you have, owners, you have the PL, you have vendors, you have all these things like that, many different constituencies that all want you to make decisions that are best for them, of course, and that your job is always what's best for the restaurant, what's best for the restaurant. And it may not be best for any one individual um, constituency. But if people understand that, as you said, the why, if they go, 
this is what's best for the restaurant and that you are the one entrusted with that judgment of action and judgment of data, they'll usually come along, even if it doesn't benefit them. Well, okay, so let's 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 just get this out there because I want people to understand that that, and I'd love to hear whether I did your words justice, but that's what I learned from you, and I wasn't even in the room, but it was like a, it was almost like a legend within the company. It was your first pre-meal whenever you decided to give it, where you articulated that idea to your team. What what I was so struck by you doing that when you became the GM at Union Square Cafe was understanding that one of the biggest responsibilities of a leader is to set clear, concise expectations to how they will make decisions. Because I think clarity and consistency are two things that everyone needs from their leader. They need clarity and consistency more than they need the leader to do always the thing that will make them happy. They need to know what to expect from that person. And in telling people that the only way you can serve any of them as individuals is to always prioritize them as a collective through prioritizing the restaurant as a whole. That's the only way a restaurant can ever survive. That's the only way a leader can ever thrive. And so that's what I got from you. <laughs> that was a nice surprise to read in the book. But I also will tell you as someone now that, uh, look, I said I work as a, as a psychoanalyst here in New York and I listen to people talk about their businesses, not just restaurant. The thing that, that really undoes morale is when they don't know how the leaders make the decision. It's not about transparency. All types of businesses have compliance issues, things that cannot be shared. It's not, it's like they understand how the decision, if they understand how decisions are made, then they're free to say, all right, this is a, this is a company. This is a business that I can, I can work for. Or if how the decisions are made are just not part of that person's DNA then the responsibility comes entirely back to them to find other work. Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, that's okay. Not everyone belongs in every organization, right? It, it again is a relationship. And the idea that everyone should be able to find their space in every organization is not dissimilar to thinking that any two people in the world are meant to be together. That's not how it works. There needs to be some synergies. There needs to be some chemistry. Um, but the best way to figure out who your person is, what your company is, is to have everything very well laid out such that you know what the playing field is and you can decide whether that's a field you want to play on. Yeah, that's 100%. Um, so you quoted... Uh, and I didn't ask you about your dad when I was giving names because he just is, in a sense, central to you, the story, your history, as is your mom. Um, he's there. But his one of his many pieces of wisdom, adversity is a terrible thing to waste, was a talk that he gave at the Welcome Conference. Um, you can still find it on YouTube, I think. Um, what What is the Welcome Conference? The Welcome Conference, I started... Um, man, years ago, it's hard for me to understand how many years ago anything was since COVID. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's distorted my sense of time. Um, in the before times. In the before times. I started it in the before times um, because I found myself through my relationship with Daniel and our success at 11 Madison Park speaking at chef and food conferences all over the world. 
But every time I went to one, I looked around and realized that I was the only dining room person. I was the only restaurateur. I was the only hospitality guy. Um, the thing that was happening at those chef conferences was amazing. It was people from all over the world getting together to share ideas, to inspire one another. And through being together, they were establishing a community. And I believe the craft of cooking grew dramatically because of all that stuff happening. And it wasn't happening for our side of the room. I believe that hospitality is a craft. It's a muscle you can strengthen. It's a skill that can be taught. And I just wanted us to have our own space where we could share our own ideas and inspire our own peers and build our own community. And I started the Welcome Conference to do that. And I started it in this little basement auditorium down in the um, East Village. And it was like lightning in a bottle. It was one of those things where you could tell right away that we were all craving it, even if we didn't realize it. Um, and it was a bunch of servers and managers and owners together just talking about hospitality. And it grew dramatically over the years. It's now at Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center. But in addition to it growing bigger, it's also grown in its scope. Because over the years, as I looked around the room, what I realized was it wasn't just dining room people anymore. It started as dining room people. And then there were chefs in the room, too, who were also passionate about hospitality. And then there were people from insurance and banking. Um, this last year, there was a team of four veterinarians, um, all people who believe like I do, that putting hospitality front and center in every decision you're making is what will separate the great ones from the pack. The welcome conference, seeing other people start to connect with our ideas more consistently and more significantly is one of the main reasons also that I thought it was a worthwhile use of time to write this book. Well, very much so. I mean, it is a craft. Hospitality is a craft. Um, you know, and yet, look, there's a long-running TV show called Top Chef. There is no top maitre d'. That's never going to be a show. Um, so let's talk about this. How does hospitality and unreasonable hospitality, how does it apply in other industries? So, I mean, let's, uh, I'll start with unreasonable hospitality and then back, back into it. Um, because I believe that there are opportunities in almost every business, if you look closely enough, to go above and beyond for the people around you and create the kind of memories that establish those long lasting bonds and ultimately make the business more profitable and the people in the business happier for being able to engage in that creative process of giving gifts. Um, my favorite metaphor to use is, is real estate agents and it's a timely one. I just moved uh, to a new apartment. Um, every time I bought or sold, or bought or rented a new apartment. Um, the real estate agent has at best left me a bottle of sparkling wine in the fridge as my thank you slash congratulations gift. Um, you know, this is someone with whom I've spent weeks, if not months looking together for my new home. If they've been paying attention, they should know almost every intimate detail about my life. So imagine instead, if the first time my wife and I checked out the apartment that we fell in love with, uh, he or she overheard my wife talking about the nook that she could imagine herself doing yoga in every morning. And 
Imagine if when we moved into the apartment, rather than the thoughtless, obligatory bottle of bubbles, in that nook was a brand new yoga mat, along with a candle and a note that said, welcome to your new home. Okay, that is a world I want to live in. But hey, the yoga mat's not that much more expensive than the bottle of sparkling wine. And compared to the average commission, it's an insignificant investment in what will invariably become a lifelong relationship. Because we will feel seen by that person, will feel cared for. And that will be someone that we'll go to every time we move for the rest of our, our life, as long as they're still doing the job. Um, so that's their 5%. 95% is commission and work, and but they, they can be reckless. They can buy a Lululemon yoga mat. They can spend more than the, yeah. the <laughs> bottle of Prosecco, but that's, yeah. That's right. And, and so and I think it's I think no, it, ahead, I think ahead. it would be a transformational thing. I really do because by the way, like not only are we going to be that much more engaged in doing business with that person for the rest of our lives, but that person's going to see how happy we are when we got that and it's going to refill their gas tank. I think it's going to make them happier and therefore better at their job. Yes, hospitality people who have hospitality genes, the act of they get from giving giving is the reason that they do it um but i would i would actually caveat that just slightly i believe everyone gets from giving you just need to experience it a couple times in order to get addicted to it so then what is the difference because i want to move into to something that i've heard for years what is the difference between hospitality and luxury um i think that Luxury is more. Hospitality is more thoughtful. Um, luxury, to go back to RC's quote, is not one size fits one. <laughs> luxury is just throwing the most lavish stuff at someone, regardless of whether it's the right thing to throw at them. Um, luxury is going to a hotel and you check into the room and They want to impress you, so they put out some food display without any understanding of where you're coming from and what your appetite might be and whether you even eat the food that's there. (laughs) Hospitality is actually spending a little bit of time getting to know you such that you can be receiving the kind of gift that will actually make you happy in that moment. Um, One of the things I hate is when I go to a restaurant and they start me with a glass of champagne, even if it's a really nice champagne to, to, you know, acknowledge me. I might've been really excited about a a Manhattan. And in fact, anyone that knows me knows I like to start every meal with a Manhattan. And now I feel a sense of guilt. I have to drink the glass of champagne and now I can't have the Manhattan because I don't want to get too drunk. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, but I, I think like the, the, the most clearly clear and concise answer is luxury is more hospitality is more thoughtful. Yeah. So the luxury piece is interesting. I have heard, uh, you know, working for Danny and certainly after his book came out that, that this, these ideas that you espouse in the book, and I want you to myth bust here. The myth is, and, and it's actually addressed in the, the, the jacket of the book that every, every business can choose to be in the hospitality industry and you don't have to be in the luxury business to do it. I have heard for years. Well, listen, you're talking about a New York Times four-star, Michelin three-star fine dining restaurant in zip code 110. 
you cannot apply this outside of a heavily capitalized celebrity owner environment. So bust, bust that myth. The entire concept of unreasonable hospitality was born with a $2 hot dog. I don't think it costs that much. It certainly doesn't need to. Not everyone needs to employ a dream weaver and buy sleds. Like beginning to integrate this style of thinking into your organization doesn't need to cost that much. The concept of unreasonable hospitality is just placing the idea of connection, the intentional pursuit of relationship at the center of every decision and using it as, as a litmus test, as a gut check in how you go through the filter of decision-making. Um, not to mention how we started this entire conversation, which is I do believe that if you have even some incremental resources to invest in it, it will make your business more profitable. Um, so I genuinely, I mean, listen, caring more is free, <laughs> trying harder is free. And I believe all of this stuff, it increases retention, it minimizes turnover, by the way, for the team and your customers. And those are two of the most costly things for any business. Investing in something, however minimally, if it has the ability to make that kind of impact, that's a decision that any industry should be making. So I'm someone who likes circles, so we are ending where we began. What are you working on now? Well, um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that in restaurants we have an opportunity or perhaps even a responsibility to create magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. And the thing that brings me joy in the restaurant business is creating my own little universe and inviting people in for a few hours and helping them celebrate or giving them the grace to forget or inspiring people to be kind by being really kind or inspiring them to be better by our focus on excellence, all of those things. And we, I've done it at 11 Madison Park. That was the longest experience of all of the experiences I created. It was three, four hours. Um, my next journey is to try my hand at creating that kind of magical world, but inviting people into it for three or four days. So when you write your next book about that, you'll come back and join us again. I look forward to that. <laughs> All right. We have been talking with Will Gadara, his new book, Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect, was published uh, this week, October 25th, 2022. Will, thank you very, very much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you because you've inspired me over the years and it feels to your point about circles, very full circle to be doing this with you now.